This week on the Backtable Podcast. We feel that we have to open the vessel, especially Basler, and we may tend to be more aggressive. So we have to be mindful that Basler artery has tortuosity, has radius of curvature that can be very variable. And when we are blindly probing, like you said, mm -hmm. we don't dissect, we don't perforate, that we are very, very meticulous, basic near-interventional techniques, having a J wire, having good knowledge of anatomy, good biplane imaging, proceeding slowly, all of these, these help. Again, not to make the occlusion worse by embolizing it distally. So, I, so you're absolutely right. I think uh, there, there is a balance between how aggressive we are and, and, and then the level of safety we must ensure. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Backtable, your source for all things endovascular and more. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on any platform like Spotify or our website, backtable.com. You can also follow us on socials like Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and keep up with the latest updates and give us feedback through comments. Sarah Novis, part of Johnson & Johnson Medical Devices Companies, is a global leader in neurovascular care. Their commitment to changing the trajectory of stroke is inspired by their long heritage and dedication to helping physicians protect people from a lifetime of hardship. Serenovis offers a broad portfolio of devices used in the endovascular treatment of hemorrhagic and ischemic stroke. I'm Sabine Dond as your host today, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Ansar Rai, a neurointerventional radiologist from the Rockefeller Neuroscience Institute in West Virginia. Welcome, Ansar. Uh, thank you, Sabine. Again, uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I think you chose a very relevant topic. Yeah, and so I'd like to know a little bit more about yourself. Um, you know, how did you end up in, in West Virginia? And let us know a little bit more about your practice. I've been at Morgantown, West Virginia University for almost 24, 25 years. I started as a general surgeon, got inspired by neurointerventional, having observed a few cases, uh, and then switched to radiology and neuroradiology. I stayed on uh, to do neurointerventional, stayed on as an attending because there was a lot of opportunity to build a practice. Not much was being done across the country or it was just coming up at least. And that just uh, led to one thing after another. And I, I stayed here in Morgantown practicing neurointerventional starting in 2002, 2003. Um, mm -hmm. I witnessed our first stroke case that was in 2001 using IATPA. <laughs> yes, yeah. IATPA uh, back then. Having that surgery background and then going into, you know, radiology and, and neurointerventional radiology must give you a lot more, you know, breadth of knowledge, especially of, of, of treating um, stroke and other neurovascular procedures. What's your stroke team like now? Um, how many people... Uh, are on the team and how many cases do you guys generally get now? Yes, yeah, so currently we do uh, between 105 to 120 cases per year of endovascular stroke therapy that has grown from 30, 35 cases we were doing back in 2005. And as you know, rapid escalation after the 2015 publication of the clinical trials Mm -hmm. certainly more awareness. So that's our number uh, of endovascular treatments. We have four people who take call for stroke. 
two of them are neurointerventionalists, two are neuroradiologists with some training in, in interventional and certainly heavy training in stroke. And we cover northern West Virginia, our catchment area is about half a million to 600,000. Uh, we are a level one trauma center and, and the only comprehensive stroke center in this part. And we get patients from the neighboring states, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Maryland. So a large geography, but not urban, dense populated. The mm -hmm. population is spread across. Now that's good. That's a large amount of volume for four treating physicians. And when we were talking before, you mentioned your clinical research is, is, is on stroke burden. Can you, can you go a little bit more into what specifically you meant by that? Right. So we, you know, there's once these trials were published, there was a lot of talk on, well, what is, what is the disease burden? What are we looking at? How many patients are we going to treat? And estimates ranged from industry estimates of very high numbers to, to a lot of variability. So what we did was, you know, everyone's familiar with, and it's an often talked about number that there are 800,000 strokes mm -hmm. per year and 87% are ischemic. And that is based on predominantly the greater Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky five county study, which was very good because they used ICD codes for acute ischemic stroke. And so we did a similar study over a three-year period in our primary catchment areas. And because we have 85% penetration in our service area, meaning 85% of patients with a stroke come to our hospital, and we know that based on DHHR records that each county submits for an ICD code. So we used the same denominator of 800,000 that came out from the ICD database. And then over a three-year period, we looked at these patients and every single one of them had a CT angiogram. So key requirement for a population study is a well-defined population, access to the population and, and a reliable marker of disease. And in this case, we had all of that. And so our assessment is not based on a clinical definition of a large vessel stroke. It's based on CT angiogram analysis. And we published a couple of papers of that, and then we repeated using same methodology in different geographies in states, northern New York, Buffalo, and then south all the way in Tampa. And we came up with this with very consistent incidence of large vessel strokes. So, for example, we estimate that based on the current U.S. population, there are about 719,000 acute ischemic strokes which very closely matches the number that is published by AHA, which is around 700,000. And we estimate that of these large vessel strokes, are, including M2s, account for 15% of all AIS, which comes to 31 per 100,000 per year or between 80 and 135,000. Okay, that's great. I mean, in regards to, now you mentioned M2 now, Posterior circulation in that in that stroke burden, did you guys do a subset to decide how much of those are posterior circulation strokes? Right. So yes, we did, and we estimated two percent of all AIS are posterior circulation stroke, which is a little bit higher than what has been published, which is around one percent. But that is based on studies uh, early two thousand, and I don't think they included a uh, CT angiogram reliable 
occlusion site. So yeah, we estimate 2% are posterior circulation, which comes to about four per 100,000 persons per year, which is about 12,000, uh, ranging from eight to about 20,000 posterior circulation strokes per year. Got it. And, and what is your definition? What, what is a posterior circulation stroke? So primarily these include basilar artery occlusions. For example, in our own practice, when we track our numbers, this accounts for 10% of our endovascular practice, which is basilar artery occlusions, another 2% posterior cerebral arteries. And in basilar, I, I include, you know, proximal basilar, vertebral basilar junction, strokes related to vertebral artery dissections. We don't have separate granular numbers for, for example, superior cerebellar artery strokes or posterior inferior cerebellar artery strokes, but that number is bound to be much less. The bulk is but basilar artery. Basilar and PCA too, right? Yeah. Isolated PCAs for us were about 2% of our endovascular practice, uh, would be less than half percent of all AIS nationwide. But the bulk is basilar artery. Got it. And you know, when when you when you mentioned also earlier already in 2015 all the landmark trials, why were all the trials focused on anterior circulation? Is is it just because of the numbers that there's more anterior circulations, or is there any other reason? Right. Partly a number may be a factor because in contrast to basilars accounting for two percent, uh, M1 and M2s account for thirteen to fourteen percent. So certainly it's easier to do a trial where there are more patients with a certain disease, but also because it's a more defined clinical syndrome that presents frequently that mm. constitutes the largest component of large vessel strokes that may be or easier to randomize a patient to one arm or the other. Problems with basilar trials is, is, a, is a lack of equipoise in randomizing and and we faced that even with anterior circulation with MR Rescue, for example. We were part of that IMS3 where some of these trials failed because patients were not appropriately or equally randomized, which changed with the Swift Prime and other studies that came out. True. The clinical presentation, I mean, you, how do these basilar strokes present? It's, it's quite varied, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. It's very variable. It can vary from very mild symptoms, dysarthria, ataxia, dizziness, visual changes, to frank somnolence and coma. And the presentation can rapidly progress from mild to severe. Another, in the setting of vertebral artery dissection, for example, these can be preceded by neck pain. One of or a few of the worst cases I've seen are following chiropractic neck manipulation with subsequent dissection and occlusion. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, it, it is quite remarkable to see how the clinical presentation it can be. It really can be so mild and then it can be this completely comatose. And I don't know, when we see a, a basilar clot on imaging, I mean, that to me, that's just like the worst stroke you can potentially have. And so, you know, my, my group, I mean, we, we do everything we possibly can to treat it if we can. There's actually really interesting movie called Diving Bell and the Butterfly about someone in locked-in syndrome. It's just remarkable what kind of stroke can happen. Yeah, that uh, was, it was a French uh, gentleman, young guy, 30-some-year-old, and, and he actually uh, wrote, or maybe wrote is not the right word, he 
he dictated the book. All he could do was just blink yeah. one eye. And he, he dictated the whole book using just, just blinking. But yeah, these, these can be devastating. Young patients have, you know, we've seen some, some horrible outcomes. Um, it can also be very rewarding. Uh, we had a patient just two days ago. My partner actually did that case, 36-year-old woman, and that turned out well. But yeah, you're right, you know, and that's the reason why conducting basilar artery trials are difficult because we want to do everything because we have enough signal that tells us that the alternative is pretty disastrous. And that makes it very difficult to randomize a patient with a basilar artery occlusion to, for example, uh, maximum medical management. Exactly. Very tough to, to randomize that type of patient. You're right. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about your practice, how, how you treat these posterior circulations. And then we're going to wrap back and, and go into what our current, what our current ongoing trials are and some evidence. But in your practice, practice, someone presents with a posterior circulation stroke, let's say a basilar occlusion. Do you care about the duration, the last known well? Does that matter? I would say we do care about that. I would say that that can be less of a factor. It's not the only factor. Certainly, I think for us, the most important factor is patient's age. And the younger the patient, the more benefit of doubt we will give to the patient in favor of treatment. Uh, we do use, so every patient, as I mentioned earlier, gets his CT stroke study, which includes an extra intracranial CT angiography. And in case of a um, basilar occlusion, patient's age, clinical symptoms, whether the symptoms are mild, whether the patient is comatose, for how long the patient is comatose. In older patients, evaluation of brainstem, for example, can be difficult on a non-contrast CT, as you know. Totally. Surrounded yeah. by the skull. It's a lot of streak artifacts. That is the one area where we may use an MRI if we have to make a decision. So other, we, we don't use MR for our triage at all, except in basilar strokes in certain cases. So last known, last known well can be not a reliable marker, especially in wake-up strokes. We don't know if the stroke started an hour before the patient woke up or, or much, much uh, before that. Certainly, if in, a, in a witnessed onset, there is data, there are publications for posterior circulation strokes that are similar to anterior circulation. Basically, the sooner you treat, the better the outcome. Uh, we're not dogmatic about whether if, if a patient has crossed a certain time after symptom onset that, no, we're not going to treat that. We don't do that for anterior circulation either. So the main criteria that we look at are patient's age, comorbidities, severity of stroke that we may use MRI to assess. And like I said, in, in, in a 36-year-old coming in after seven, eight hours, we will treat that patient. Got it. So, so it's not a very prescriptive triage or inclusion process. It's, it's fairly dependent on the patient. We, you know, we used to say different strokes for different folks. So we were very... Yeah, that's a good quote. Yeah, we tailor it. Exactly. It's tailored, right? I mean, that's very similar to our practice too. You know, what if someone's young and their stroke skill is low, but you see a basilar clot, 
Is that someone you would treat because you, you know it will get worse or you would watch very carefully and see if the symptoms wax or wane? Right. So if, if someone has minimum symptoms and has a basilar occlusion, there, there has to be a reason why they don't have worse symptoms. So it could be that it's subocclusive. It could be that there is good collateral flow, typically from the anterior circulation. And we would, we would tend to, we would tend to lean towards treating that patient. I would give you an example. We had a, we had a young woman, this is eight, 10 years ago. She came in with minimum symptoms. She had left vertebral dissection. She had a semi-occlusive clot. I think we just gave IATP at that time. Kept her on heparin. She got worse. We redid uh, TPA. I think we did a balloon angioplasty. She got worse. We ended up stenting her basilar artery and, and vertebral artery. But in her case, it was a dissection that kept getting worse. Yeah. So to answer your question, if they're low, very low symptoms, their occlusion is probably not complete. We may add anticoagulation if we're watching the patient in the ICU, but, but we'll be fairly vigilant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Sa same with us. We're pretty high tense. You know, any, any symptom, we, we, we tend to treat as well. You know, how about this situation? A person who you can, even on CTE, you know, we can use a P, you know, P, PC aspect score, which is basically an aspect score of the posterior. Where you see obvious edematous changes in maybe the cerebellum, some in the pons, and the guy is comatose or the guy or girl is comatose. Would you still go? Do you go and, and get the clot out if they're younger and give the benefit of doubt or say that this is done? If they're younger, we would. I mean, it'd, it'd be very hard to say no unless clinically there are no brainstem reflexes or something like that. If yeah. they, so cerebellum, sure that that can have devastating symptoms, but obviously the more permanent ones are going to be with brainstem. the brainstem. And so if we see a massive brainstem change, then young patient, we may we may confirm them that with a rapid. DWI, MRI, just to prognosticate and then talk to the family and explain. We have done cases like that. We have not had good success. We have had big pontine hemorrhages too. So generally at that, if, if there is significant brainstem involvement, the outcome is pretty dismal. Uh, we don't grade a PC aspects on, on, on every case. Uh, we, we look at brainstem, if bilateral thalamic involvement that could be locked in, but, but the only, only time where we may not do something is if there's significant brainstem involvement. Okay. Again, age seems to be the most important factor in all of, um, of these strokes, uh, of posterior circulation strokes. And, and I bet you my next question about isolated PCA stroke, you know, there's, there's two schools of thought. Okay. There's a, there's a clot, get it out. Or two, you can make the clot worse by, by migrating it more proximally. So how do you approach an isolated PCA occlusion? Right. So generally we are not very aggressive in isolated PCA strokes. They can have pretty significant NIH uh, score. They can have a high score over 10, 12. 
<laughs> and maybe it's because the ones that we've seen have already had a PCA territory infarct. Like I said, 2% of our cases, and this is based on about 800 endovascular cases, we have done isolated PCA, but again, they were probably pretty early on young patients. And I don't have the data in front of me, but I, but whenever we've done that, we've, we've given a high consideration to just intraarterial TPA and not put any stent retrievers in that small vessel, for example. Yep. And cause things to be worse, right? I mean, right, bringing that right, clot into right. the into the basal, yeah. and then you know. So, so I would say we're we're not on the in the aggressive PCA tweet group. Yeah, yeah, and then a visual disturbance is is a lot less morbidity than than having you know being locked in. Um, exactly. Uh, you know, so I got some more kind of varying questions, but I want to kind of bring that into the technique of of how you actually get these. Well, you know, do you do you perform all your strokes with sedation or have you, do you have anesthesia involved? So we, we do have anesthesia involved in every case. And uh, we made that decision, I, I think 2010 or 11. Mm -hmm. So they are in the room. They are, we have a good team. They are quote unquote on call as they are for trauma page that is initiated, goes to the anesthesiologist. So they are in the room. Yes. I would say that the majority of posterior circulation treatments we've done are under general anesthesia. Mm -hmm. That's not the case with anterior circulation. And the reason for that is that we have seen patients deteriorate on the table and yeah. then require emergent intubation. So I would say that for posterior circ for basilar occlusions, for example, our majority of our cases are under general anesthesia. Yeah. You know, I, I always tell people and I'm you know, teaching IR to, to something like you, you want to set yourself up for success. So if you have that ability, the, the last thing you want to be is tubing the patient while you're trying to right. you know, get up to vert and, 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 um, and, and it just, it just becomes a mess. Right. For posterior femoral versus radial, do you have a preference? Yes. And it's femoral because of speed and access. We, mm -hmm. you know, between anterior and posterior circulations, we've done more radial cases in the posterior circulation because at times access, femoral access to the vertebral can be challenging. But I would say generally our preference is for femoral. We do have the advantage of having the CT stroke protocol or CT angiography, so we know what the lay of the land is. Mm -hmm. But generally it's femoral and general anesthesia because our teams are have practiced that so much so it, it it's just more efficient exactly now for for a posterior stroke what's your what's your setup as far as guide catheter sizing do you ever do a balloon guide in the in the vert or that that's a a no-no so i mean i would i would start by saying nothing's a no-no i don't <laughs> have a a dogmatic approach again that now we will always do this technique and there's so many names and mnemonics yeah. we we I don't prescribe to that. I would say that our practice has evolved that generally we don't put a balloon guide catheter or I think the last time maybe I used it was a seven French balloon guide many years ago. Currently we would go with an eight French femoral short sheath mm -hmm. and then some flavor of guide catheter, which is preferably and generally an 088. Mm -hmm. We would park that in the vertebral artery 
Obviously, the dominant vertebral artery in cases of vertebral dissection, for example, we've also put a catheter in the other vertebral artery and just stripped TPA and did the intervention or mechanical component from the other vertebral artery. But mostly, we would have an 8 French sheath, an, eight, uh, an 088 guide, and then 070, 072 intermediate catheter that is either navigated over an 024 microwire, such as the Aristotle, or it may be navigated over an over a smaller microcatheter, an 027, for example. Uh, there's Duo, there's XT27. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that having used a lot of stent retriever and then Mercy, Multi-Mercy, and Balloon Guide, I have switched, and my preference is aspiration. Certainly, if I don't have to cross the clot, we would get the aspiration catheter, or we would get an intermediate catheter into the basilar artery. And then from that point on, if I have to cross the clot to get access to the mid-basilar, then I would use a stent retriever and aspiration. I think in future, we'll see a greater use of larger bore catheters and primary aspiration. Yeah, I like it. So you actually make an effort to not have the wire cross the clot and see if your system will get on fast to the clot. But if you have to then cross it, you will then, of course, your microcatheters are a distal, might as well, you know, uh, sandwich it with a, right. with a centrifuge. So that's, that's okay. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. So yeah, ADAPT, the aspiration, I feel works amazingly in, in the basilar. It just kind of, it's like, it's like meant for it. Um, you know, we've had some clots that just go flying out of the catheter in the basilar. I'm sure you've had the same experience. Yes, I, I agree. And, and, um, I think with large bore catheters, uh, I think these, these aspiration techniques will get better. I give a shout out to Quill Turk for, for initiating the ADAPT, uh, revolution. And, and I think, I mean, I've, we're getting comfortable with using larger and larger catheters, of course. Yeah. The pre-imaging tells us what is the expected size of the vertebral or the basilar artery. Yeah, they can be pretty juicy, you know. I my right. the largest I I put in the basilar was an 074, and it worked. I mean, the the, the artery was huge, and so I figured, you know. Yeah, I've 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 used uh, 07072 uh, Cerebase. There's uh, mm-hmm. Sophia. I've used 088 as an off-label. Yeah case and that was very fast Um, yeah that's the that's 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 the big dog right there (laughs) yeah we're uh, we just uh, started the route 92 clinical trial Uh just enrolled the first two u.s patients a couple weeks ago awesome that is just limited to anterior circulation but you know there are these larger catheters that don't currently have uh, the aspiration indication so it's off label but hopefully these trials will change that will help that now Say there is, on the dominant vert that you're supposed to go up, there's a stenosis, um, or worst case, there's an occlusion, and the other vert is, let's just say it's not amenable to mechanical uh, devices. Are you done? I mean, the stenosis, I'm assuming you would try to get across it, Uh, but what about an occlusion? So a cervical vertebral occlusion? Yeah, cervical. Yeah, so I have done... A few cases like that where I said, okay, this access is going to be challenging in terms of getting to the basilar and, 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 you know, deploying mechanical devices. So I have done 
place the five French in the contralateral subclavian and a microcatheter in the non-dominant vert and just started dripping TPA 10 milligrams in 100 cc over 30 minutes so that at least something's going in while I work on the other vert, the one that I'm going to use for access. We have done acute stenting if it's a vertebral origin, osteal lesion that is limiting our access and it's an artery to artery embolus. Mm-hmm. Our, our primary goal would be to go clean out the basilar and then stent it on the way back to maintain inflow. If the stenosis is so severe that there is no inflow and there's no inflow on the other side, typically, I mean, as you know, yeah. if there's no inflow, it's, it's hard to establish outflow. We have infrequently stented up front. If there's a cervical vertebral occlusion, then typically the occlusion is at the C12 junction where there is likely an underlying dissection. And then there is stagnation and retrograde occlusion from that point. So we would, I would tend to use aspiration and see how much of that opens up. Yeah. And then what about at the neck? If it was the origin, I mean, again, you said you you would, I really like that you, you put the a five French on the other side. Do you just get access on the other groin and put that yeah. catheter you get and have it drip? To, yeah. Yeah, and you're just, just dripping, you know, from proxy. That's uh, that's yeah. great. You know, you're and having something good, going up while yeah, you're working. Yeah, I had a good case with that where that helped clean out over 30 minutes. You know, we used to do a lot of IATP, and I've seen good clot lysis with that. And it helped out perhaps decrease the clot burden intracranially. And then we were lucky and successful that we could open it integrate on the other side. Yeah. I've had cases where we were not. I don't know if you published that case, but you should. It's just a nice, I mean, I, I didn't even think, you know, it, it, you just, you're adding roads to success, uh, basically, mm. to, to while, while you're doing the other, working on the other side. Yeah. And I mean, every little bit will help. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, you might as well. Right. That's great. Have you ever gone and done, done a little like road less traveled, gone through the PCOM and, and, and gone to the, uh, to, to treat the basilar? I have not. I've not done that for acute stroke. If that is the case, you know, if the if the occlusion is in the proximal basilar or the vertebral basilar junction, there's typically an underlying stenosis. There's there is um, an atherosclerotic plaque because if it's an embolus, it typically floats all the way to the top of the basilar. So we've seen cases where we have had a proximal basilar occlusion um, or vertebral basilar junction occlusion. And on the CTA, you can see the distal basilar. And so you know that mm-hmm. it is being fed. Yeah, backfilled from the PCOMs. And depending on the patient's condition in those cases, are we have considered starting antiplatelet therapy, knowing that we may have to acutely stent, which we try to avoid at all costs. But even if we open the proximal lesion and then do a stent three or four days later, but I have not gone from the ICA to the PCOM. I don't know what I will do to aspirate the clot. I don't know yeah. what size catheter I would and get in. You know, there are some nice smaller aspiration catheters. Since you do a lot of aspiration, I'm sure you've 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 used these, you know, 45s and mm-hmm. and 55s, which which we've had pretty nice success with. Not not through the PCOM. That's that's a very rare <laughs> occurrence, yeah. if any, but. In general. Yeah. And, and if you have bilateral big PCOMs, generally the basilar is a smaller caliber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
because of the uh, collateral circulation, we looked at our data and measured basilars, and we found that with one fetal PCR2, the basilar caliber drops remarkably. And if they have a proximal occlusion, we've seen patients do pretty well with just getting them through the acute phase. Maybe they picked off a perforator. So getting them through the acute phase medically with anticoagulation, antiplatelets, and not mm-hmm. not done too much of a heroic effort. Do that small basilar. Yeah. You sp- speaking of sizes and, and say, you know, you had to use a stent shiver because you got through the clot. Is there is there a size you don't go above or I guess, or is it stent retriever specific? I think we've used mostly a four millimeter diameter, which could be a Trevo or we recently Embotrap or previously mm-hmm. Solitaire. So, and, I mean, all of these. That, not right, the biggest all, size. Don't go like, you know, 6.5 or 6. Yeah, four, I, yeah, I think people have, and I've talked to the engineers too. Um, I don't know if there's any value in that. Uh, certainly there's no data that that is better. So all of these are pretty interchangeable. I mean, there's no published data that one is better than the other. Yeah. Yeah. And um, obviously we're talking about doing all this now. Toaster circuit intervention. I mean, it. there are complications as with any stroke intervention. Uh, and, you know, anyone who are kind of to our listeners, you have to be very careful where you can dissect the artery you're going up and, 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 and lose access to the area. So it's, it's, it's something that needs to be very well respected. Any words of advice there, Ansar? Well, I think you, you summed it up well. We are generally, as we discussed earlier, we are generally, we feel that we have to open the vessel, especially basilar, and we may tend to be more aggressive. So we have to be mindful that basilar artery has tortuosity, has radius of curvature, that can be very variable. And when we are blindly probing, like you said, mm-hmm. we don't dissect, we don't uh, perforate, that we are very, very meticulous, basic neurointerventional techniques, having a J wire, having good knowledge of anatomy, good biplane imaging, proceeding slowly, all of these, these help. So again, not to make the occlusion worse by embolizing it distally so I, so you're absolutely right. I think uh, there, there is a balance between how aggressive we are and, and, and then the level of safety we must ensure. Yeah, exactly. Those are good points. I mean, yeah, there, there's been, you know, as with any neurovascular intervention, it's just yet to be very careful and, and, and very respectful of the territory. Any sort of kind of shortcut or, or, or uh, you know, impatience can, can really, really have devastating consequences. Do you, Ansar, do you think that we're going to ever have guidelines on posterior stroke? I mean, you mentioned the, the challenges. Are there any current trials to, to give us, you know, guidelines? So there are no current trials. I just looked at clinical.trial.gov. There's a couple in China that are ongoing. Or starting, there is one called Attention that they just published the methodology. There was one before that, I think, called BEST. And the trial was terminated early because of such a high rate of crossover from the medical to the interventional arm that the data just became noise. And as we discussed earlier, there is, there is no equipoise. Or, or there is, it's very hard to have good equipoise, and, and people certainly feel that way. Uh, but I don't know if they've 
if people will agree to a randomized control trial where a young patient with a basilar occlusion is randomized to medical management. That'll be hard. Uh, we did yeah. that in Swift Prime. We only treated patients if they were enrolled in a clinical trial because we felt that we had to do that, that the previous trials were negative. We didn't have evidence, so we should do it in a clinical trial setting. And I, I can tell you it was very hard. And we were not offering endovascular therapy outside of the trial. So it was very hard to randomize 40, 50-year-old patients with MCS strokes to medical management. And I cannot imagine how hard that will be in in a basilar occlusion. So to your point, there are no high levels of evidence. There is no guidance. The data that has come out in these larger registries have shown after the basic registry that was 2002, 2007, that didn't show any benefit from therapy. More recent uh, registries have shown some signal towards benefit. In our own data set, we have about a 50% mortality for basilar occlusions and vascular therapy. Uh, we have about a 20, 22% good outcome rate. Um, this is compared to the anterior circulation of 20% mortality and, and, you know, 50 plus percent good outcome rate. So, yeah, it's hard to, you know, but then you can make that argument that that 50% mortality rate would have been way more if you didn't right, intervene, right? right? So, I mean, th those 22% would never have happened to have a good outcome. It, it's just, it's, yeah. it's going to remain that gray zone. But I think, you know, anyone who does a lot of stroke and, and, and sees a lot of neuro, you know, stroke in a clinical setting, I mean, I, I think, I think posterior circulation interventions here to stay. Right. I agree. And, and it'll be, It'll be very hard, if not impossible, to do a randomized control trial, as we discussed earlier. 10% of AIS, that's 12,000 strokes, then basilar, then you start whittling down with the inclusion-exclusion. It's going to be an expensive, lengthy <laughs> trial that will not finish. And, yeah. and as devices get better, as our techniques get better, I, I think what you just said is absolutely right. Yeah. And uh, as the techniques, as the availability, as, right. as the, you know, awareness and getting these patients to us quicker, mm -hmm. uh, all of those I think are going to help us. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, I didn't mention earlier, but it's very positive and, and encouraging. And I hope more people would do that at more interventional radiologists would treat uh, stroke because they are in every hospital and it's, it's not a big jump um, in terms of skill or training. I don't think it's at all, but I'm glad that you're doing it. And I'm, I hope more and more interventional radiologists do that. Yeah. No, thank you. I mean, it's mentorship and training and every, like it, as long as it's properly trained, then, then yeah, I agree. More, more interventional radiologists would be great and, and just more availability everywhere. And something that we should talk about another topic about your, you know, your clinical research and stroke burden. Any, any parting words of wisdom? I know we just mentioned a lot right now. Anything left you kind of thought that you wanted to say before we uh, uh, wrap up here? No, thank you. It was, it was a pleasure meeting you. You're certainly doing a phenomenal job with this. I'm very grateful to be part of it and happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It, it's great and, and uh, really, really uh, look forward to having you again. Thanks, Ansar. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. 
If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.